Welcome to the Jinx Dance Media Podcast. This is your host, Jude, and this is where I'll be chatting to you about how to design and create high-quality dance events and creative dance content. I'll be covering topics ranging from fundraising, marketing, production, content creation, design, and so much more so that you can have all the tools and resources you need to stand out and build genuine connections with your audience. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this week's podcast episode. One of my former special guests, Jess, is here on the podcast today. So to get us started, um, we're going to be talking about fundraising strategies because you've worked in nonprofits a lot. You're currently the CEO of Chicago Dance Crash, which Mm -hmm. is a nonprofit here in Chicago. But yeah, so that's really going to be the topic today. And thank you for joining me again. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you just want to give us a little bit more background specifically on your experience in dance and fundraising and maybe tie Mm -hmm. those together. Yeah, so I've been dancing since I was four years old. I started classically training in ballet, modern contemporary, and then about two years ago really started diving into street dance, starting with hip hop and now transitioning into a little more um, waving, dipping my toes into popping, um, all of that good stuff. But in terms of nonprofits and fundraising, I've always um, been really inclined to the arts administrative space. So when I was 19, when I was um, an undergrad at UC Irvine in California, I joined the board of a nonprofit called Bare Bones Dance Theater. Um, we really worked within Southern California to bring different companies, um, professional dance companies, into the school to teach workshops. We also had an annual showcase that was all um, student choreographed. All of our dancers were from the dance department as well as inviting people from the school in general. Um, and it was very much run as a formal nonprofit organization. So I joined the board as the financial chair. Um, I also was doing grant writing for them and then eventually moved up to become the co-executive director of that organization. Um, So I had already dipped my toes into arts admin. I had done an internship at Hubbard Street Dance Chicago in their general management um, position. And that was working directly under one of the producing associates who helped um, manage the uh, bigger productions, kind of artistic artist relations side within that organization. And then when I finally moved to Chicago in 2000. 19, I was working at the Harris Theater for Music and Dance. It's downtown in Chicago. So if you've seen the big silver Pritzker Pavilion, fun fact, there's a giant theater beneath that as well. (laughs) Um, And they are heavy dance and music presenters. So it was really great to be able to work from them. Um, But come COVID 2020, obviously a lot of theaters are shutting down, dance companies are pausing. So a lot of those arts administration um, jobs disappeared, including my own, unfortunately. Um, So I started an online coaching business, which I ran for three years, but was still working in nonprofit, just doing kind of like projects here and there. And then when I was invited to take the um, executive director position at Chicago Dance Crash, I was like, okay, it's a sign. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm diving fully back into arts administration. I also work as the development associate and board liaison at Chicago Shakespeare Theater on Navy Pier. So development and fundraising is very much um, a big part of my life. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm super excited to pick your brain today because mm-hmm. I myself have been trying to learn a lot more about like the arts admin space and nonprofits and fundraising because um, I'm always trying to explore how I can make more money doing this stuff and also provide you know resources to other dancers to do mm-hmm. the same. So um, yeah, I think this is going to be super valuable for anyone who's listening and is looking to 
support themselves, whether like individually or as an organization and build that community. Um, I think this is going to be super awesome. So Mm -hmm. really excited. Thanks for joining me again. And yeah, so let's just go ahead and jump into it then. So my first question is, can you give a breakdown of the different elements that go into a fundraising strategy? Yeah, so we always say that first thing you want to start with, and I was actually um, getting breakfast with a colleague of mine yesterday, and we were just nerding out and talking about all of this stuff, is to always start with your mission and what you want to achieve. Are you um, an education-based organization? Is that your primary goal to hold workshops? Are you performance-based? Is your goal to be creating and presenting on stages? Do you want to host events? Are you really involved with the community? What is it specifically that you want to achieve? And especially if you're brand, brand new, don't have a previous operating budget, um, just getting a general idea of the money that you are going to need to make the thing happen. Um, And then of course you can start to you know, figure out where that funding is going to come from. If you're a 501c3, which we'll get into a little bit more later, um, does that mean you have the space available to get that money from grants, from foundations, from government support? Is that an option? Do you want to align yourself with a um, corporation, form a partnership, get get your money that way? Or are you really looking for community and individual support? Um, and then from there, you can really start to narrow down the specific strategies, but really starting with with um, that initial goal, your mission, and then engineering from there the amounts that you need and where that money is going to specifically come from. Um, And yeah, I'm going to definitely dive into a little bit more about the pros and cons of each individual source of funding and how you can start to integrate it all together to make sure that you have a healthy and sustainable organization as well. Yeah, absolutely. I love Mm -hmm. that you start with like finding like that that main purpose. That's Mm -hmm. something that I've talked about on this podcast before, even just in terms of events, right? Like I always talk about how having like a purpose-driven event or a purpose-driven organization is actually going to make you succeed in the long run and Mm -hmm. help you stand out amongst many other people because a lot of people who don't have like that purpose have a hard time making decisions later Mm -hmm. down the road and Mm -hmm. having a very strategic approach to whatever it is they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. So I love that. Mm -hmm. Um, So with that being said, um, with your experience in fundraising for different organizations, What are like some common best practices that you have seen that have been most effective? Yeah, so just to even piggyback off what I just mentioned with being very mission and purpose driven, those are the best organizations because you you don't have to start um, like putting things into place when and wait until you get that 501c3 or that piece of paper. You can start immediately with building a community and with really making sure that you're putting things forward that is going to be reflective of when you um, do get that funding and are able to scale. So making sure that you have a really strong base there. And from, from that point, you can start to strengthen your relationships within the community, whether it's the individuals that you're serving or people that could be potential donors or partners. Um, they're going to see that, okay, here's this organization and you know maybe their asks are a little bit smaller, maybe they're asking for $500 there, like a $25 donation there, but you can really start to put forward, okay, here's what we're doing with what we're given at the moment. And then you can of, of course scale up a little bit later down the road when you do have that celebration of getting 501c3, great, we, we can apply for this grant. Also, we have impact statements to share. We have testimonials from the community. Mm-hmm. We have things that we can put forward rather than just have it all live in the conceptual realm. 
Also, those people um, that maybe you're approaching later down the road with bigger ass, they already have a primary relationship with you and they know what you're doing and what it is you can actually put forward. So that, of course, all boils down to that one core element of having a really strong mission and acting in a way that is aligned with that specific mission, because otherwise it's, it's going to crumble. You can have all of this money, but if the intention isn't there and you don't know exactly what you're going to do with it, then mm-hmm. that energy gets spread and passed along and it's not su- sustainable in the long run. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So on the flip side of that, and I think you've already touched on that a little bit, but mm-hmm. what do you think are some common bad practices that you've seen? Mm-hmm. I think on an organizational level, the and this is something that became very apparent with COVID, is when you put all of your funding eggs in one basket. Mm. So there's typically three sources of income when it comes to having a nonprofit or an arts organization, and that's going to be your corporate foundation and government funding in one pocket. Then you have your individual donors, um, all of that good stuff in another pocket, and then having, um, you know, like sponsorships, that sort of thing. It, it still follows under the like corporate foundation giving. We usually chunk like foundation and government in one area, corporate in another, and then individual just because mm-hmm. the, like, the practices are a little bit um, different and like, the relationships look different in terms of what's expected. But I can also get into that um, a little bit more later as well. But I've noticed companies and organizations that put all of their eggs in one basket. So let's say um, you have a dance organization that is really heavily funded by one specific individual who's giving a $100,000 gift every single year. Mm -hmm. If that individual goes away, if they die, if they move, (laughs) if like whatever it is, you know, um, then you've taken a huge hit to your budget and you might not have any resources in the background. There was one company specifically that I would watch a lot growing up they folded and it was for precisely that reason is mm. their primary donor just just stopped supporting them. Mm. Um, on the flip side as well, you also have a lot of companies that were getting COVID relief over the past three years where that, depending on the size of the organization, could have amount as much of in the seven figures. That relief is pretty much ending across the board this year for a lot of organizations. And they're trying to find ways to scramble to fill those gaps because it's it's not there. A lot of um, ticket sales have been declining. The age of being able to make a lot of money based off of revenue for your performances and events is gone. Like mm-hmm. you don't really make a profit um, yeah. from those anymore. So a lot of people have that specific government funding gap and it's going to really um, hit a lot of organizations hard in the past year, which is going to be seen across the board. Um, corporate sponsorships are also declining. A lot of corporations are looking to fund organizations that provide um, specifically employment opportunities for just the broader communities, as well as ones that have really strong education programs. Mm -hmm. So corporate funding, especially if you're an organization that um, focuses primarily on performance and events, you're going to find that your avenues to get that funding is going to be um, a lot more mitigated moving Mm -hmm. forward as well. So also to say, if you also have a partnership with a corporation and that involves um, uh, needing a really strong relationship with them and having the corporation have an investment in 
your mission in the community and culture because that's a conditional relationship. Mm -hmm. The nice thing about um, if you're getting like a general operating grant, which means you can use that money for pretty much anything you want within the organization or a gift from a donor is there's less strings attached with it. Like obviously for a grant, you're going to need to file some like reporting and stuff at the end of the year or, you know, like for a donor, maybe they want their name on a plaque or like a special seat at your performance or um, whatever it is. But corporations tend to have a lot more conditional relationships with what they want out of the agreement and then what you receive. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's the danger there too, where you have an outside entity holding all of your purse strings. Mm -hmm. Um, And if that relationship goes sour or that goes away and you are relying all of your funding there, then obviously you're in a in a bit of a bad situation if you don't have like a grant in the background or that consistent funding or you don't have a strong donor base to kind of buffer things up a little bit more. Um, on the flip side, again, with grants and funding getting a little bit more difficult, it's it's the same story where they really want to see um, now there's becoming more criteria for um, wanting to support organizations that are Um, strong in their educational programming and are also serving underserved um, communities that have a lack of art. So some organizations will literally have like heat maps of where they want to see your organization Mm -hmm. doing specific work. And if you don't fall within those heat maps, then, you know, you're kind of, you're out of luck. You don't meet a very specific criteria for them. Um, There's also, there's been a lot more introductions of wanting to have minority majority within the organization. So wanting to see um, people of color in executive positions and on your boards and in your employment. And that's where things can get um, more difficult, even if you have like the best intentions to serve. Um, minority communities but your staff doesn't reflect that like that's problematic on one end in general but it's also probably going to disqualify you from a lot of funding Mm -hmm. so all's to say there's a lot happening (laughs) within (laughs) the fundraising space right now and there there is that danger of if you put all of your eggs in one basket and what is kind of a tumultuous um terrain at the moment if that funding goes away and you don't have a plan b then you you simply can't continue. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of things that you said in there. So first of all, we're definitely in like a weird time, like economically and socially with the pandemic and everything that happened during the pandemic. So I think that's definitely playing a huge role Mm -hmm. in fundraising right now. But you also mentioned um, sponsorships, corporate sponsorships. And I do want to do a separate podcast episode on this sometime Mm -hmm. in the future. But Something that I've noticed, and I, I want to tie this back to street dance here for a mm-hmm. moment, because totally. street dance heavily, heavily relies on corporate sponsorships in a mm-hmm. lot of settings. Like, just look at Red Bull, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think something that I've noticed, it's conditional, right? Like, it's a conditional mm-hmm. relationship. There are strings attached. And when you rely so much on one corporate sponsor and you don't have additional income sources it makes it really hard to say no to things that don't align with your values and align with like your mission and your Mm -hmm. purpose. And that's because you are relying on them to continue to exist. Mm -hmm. And so like having some level of independence comes from having diverse, um, like like even if you're a business, right? Having diverse revenue sources Mm -hmm. is just like a smart business strategy. Mm -hmm. And I think the same applies to fundraising as well. So yeah. 
especially with corporations because um, like that branding tends to be a lot more forward facing. Mm -hmm. So then you also have a lot of things to consider such as what does their brand mean and what does that mean for the organization when I tie myself to this brand? How does their brand reflect on you and vice versa? Yeah, because it won't it won't look the same if you're getting a gift from an individual. Sure, you, you might have something where it said this production is sponsored by individual name Mm -hmm. or if it's a grant then you would put that in like a program but it's not you know this person's name isn't plastered all over the event right you know or or this foundation isn't typically plastered over the event however when you get um corporate sponsorships and this is the same for street dance like red bull being an example snipes being an example Mm -hmm. um but also in theaters as well um like people's gas for example funds a lot of like theater and parks productions Mm -hmm. um in that realm and they have their pavilions they have their very dedicated banners and we Mm -hmm. have to approve logos and go through a lot more Mm -hmm. um just kind of steps with them as well so having that ability to to be able to advocate yourself for yourself within that type of relationship is really, really important because you don't want to end up in a place where you don't feel empowered to be able to negotiate and stand up for your brand and for your mission if you Mm -hmm. feel like things are getting compromised. Yeah. Um, so yeah, again, just making sure you have you have some some leeway and some diversity. Yeah. And sponsorships Mm -hmm. is very specific. I don't want to go super deep into this because again I'll do Mm -hmm. a separate podcast episode on this later. But sponsorship is like super different because it is not just an exchange of like like a donation, right? I think a lot of people think sponsorship is similar to fundraising. I actually think of sponsorship very separately from fundraising mm-hmm. um, because I see sponsorship as marketing. Mm-hmm. I think it's closer to marketing than it is to fundraising. Fundraising is oftentimes like things that don't have like as many or have any strings attached to it. Whereas a sponsorship is a joint marketing strategy between two brands. Mm-hmm. And So like, for example, um, out of the shadows recently, we had one person tell us like, it's amazing that you were able to put on such like a high quality battle without Red Bull ever touching it. That was like a compliment from them. And I think like Red Bull has a certain brand perception Mm. in the community to where if like Shadow Puppets was to partner with Red Bull, it would actually reflect negatively on us Mm. because Red Bull has been known for um, exploiting street dance artists in a lot of instances and also the way that they approach um specifically their breaking stuff is has been historically much more professional than the way that they handle um like dance your style and again that will probably be a separate podcast episode talking about all the red bull stuff but yeah i definitely think like it's very interesting like you have to think too if this is a joint marketing strategy where i am partnering with a brand like i'm supposed to be getting benefits out of this as well and it's not just monetary benefits it's also like brand awareness, like Mm -hmm. reach to their audience, um, things like that too, that are going to draw people in. So like, there's more that you have to think about when you're working with a corporate sponsor than you are with like grants and donors and stuff like Mm -hmm. that on like the marketing side of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) anyways, so moving on to my next question then, um, for those who are looking for funding specifically for like grassroots organizations, how would you suggest that they get started? Yeah. Um, so to reiterate a bit about what I mentioned right off the bat, and I'll keep coming back to it because it is so important, is starting with the mission and the community building first, because it, it is a process to become a nonprofit. There's um, there's documents you have to file, there's money, there's time you have to put into it. It's not an instant process where you submit a form and it's like, yeah, you're a 501c3. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't work like that. And I think people make the mistake of waiting for too long to really put their plans and their, their goals into action 
because they want to get that piece of paper first and the Mm. benefits that does come with it. But no, you can start going to businesses. You can start um, requesting, you know, partnerships and um, you can go to individuals. And like one example, um, my friend, he had started a theater group in Texas and he was going around with a bunch of kids and they were doing like little performances. And Mm. like, um, I think it was a Christmas show. So he was walking into this like store in Texas and they were like doing fake snow outside the window oh. and saying like hey do you want to <laughs> you know support this kid these kids we want to put on a play um and they weren't 501c3 yet but they were very um adamant about going about and building those relationships getting people to their events getting that visibility and really just um um, being very visible in terms of their impact and what they wanted to achieve right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And then when the time did come around, when they had started to gather, you know, those initial donations from people, um, building an email list is huge. So anyone who's ever given to your organization, whether it's through like um, like a crowdfunding initiative, whether it's through individual solicitation, um, whatever it is, making sure you have that contact and are keeping them in your network, sending some email blasts here and there about like, we have our show, maintaining visibility, showing that you really are doing the thing that they that they contributed to, regardless if it's a $25 gift or a $500 mm-hmm. gift. Um, so that when you do get that 501c3, that piece of paper, that EIN, you can come back to them and say, hey, here's like, we did it. We were, were organized in this way. Um, now we can offer you more. We can offer you a tax write-off if you decide to give us a, give to us again. We can um, just provide a lot more benefits and perks that comes with having um, that that 501c3 status, and then you can start to scale up a little bit mm-hmm. more from there. Um, so I'd say for grassroots organizations, don't wait to get that piece of paper. You can start going out, you can start putting your plans in action, um, you know, going to businesses and um, just starting starting with those smaller donations before scaling up and growing from mm-hmm. there. And then a lot more things will open up to you when you do have that status. So. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. With that being said, mm-hmm. we've, we've done the grassroots organizing, mm-hmm. okay? We're at the point now, we're like, okay, I want a 501c3 status. Mm-hmm. What would you say are the pros and the cons of that? Yeah, yeah. So this is where it gets a little <laughs> a little dense and not super sexy, but important. <laughs> so um, one big thing is you get that tax exemption slash deduction for your organization when you're doing your end of year taxes, which helps a lot of people out. Um, you also gain more eligibility for public and private grants. Um, a lot of grants, whether they're through government or through foundations, they only will fund 501c3. There's a few exceptions in there, but that's pretty generally across the board. Um, Same thing with individuals as well, as it makes it a lot easier to solicit from businesses, um, from individual donors, when you can say, hey, we can offer you a tax write-off because you're giving to a 501c3. A lot of businesses already have a budget at their beginning of the year, whether it's a corporation or smaller business, of a certain amount that they are required to give to 501c3. So you can um, definitely advocate for yourself as filling that slot. Um, There is obviously some research that goes into that not just like with the branding of the corporation but a lot are getting like I mentioned earlier very specific on what they fund so one workaround for that for example is if you have a theater and a corporation had um, previously funded a production and been a production sponsor we're seeing a lot of people shift towards we want to fund education cool, you can still get the same amount from that corporation, but it would just be designated towards your 
education fund. Mm -hmm. So there's workarounds with it, um, but just things to kind of keep in mind. Um, But to go back on the advantages, there's also um, limited liability that gets introduced. So that means that you personally cannot have um, your assets uh, seized if, for example, you encounter some debt with the organization. It doesn't fall on the employers or the board of directors. It'll Mm -hmm. just be um, the organization's assets. So that's something that is also really helpful and can help protect yourself. Um, Some disadvantages, or I wouldn't say uh, maybe like roadblocks or things that you might encounter as you go down the nonprofit route is there are, of course, like fees and time that goes into um, applying for the corporation status for um, tax exemption. So that's just something that you have to expect up front. Some people bring in their attorneys and their lawyers into it. Um, it, it really depends on the organization. There is a um, there is an organization called Lawyers for the Creative Arts. However, they're um, a group of pro bono lawyers that will offer these kinds of consultations to like blooming nonprofits or um, people who are looking to get started. So that's Mm. one big resource to know. Um, when you do begin a nonprofit as well, you will have paperwork, you will have annual filings, you will be required to submit um, reports. If you know you apply for a grant and you get it, you need to keep careful track of your transactions, your expenses, your revenue, um, all of that. So there is definitely a lot more on the administrative side that comes in. Um, you will also potentially have um, more limited personal control. So in some states, you're required to have a board of directors. Um, this doesn't mean that you have to hire from like a specific board of directors site and go out and search for people outside mm-hmm. of your world your board of directors can come for example if shadow puppets was 501c3 your board of directors could also be the crew mm-hmm. um, but also knowing that the board of directors is going to be separate from the people that actually operate so i can't be the executive director and be on the board of directors mm-hmm. like i answer to the board of directors technically um so that's just something to keep in mind it depends on the state and like what they require in terms of that specific setup but um there have definitely been situations in companies where as their board of directors grow they have stronger voices um, there's been cases where maybe they edge out like an artistic director or someone because, you know, it's it's finding that relationship balance. Mm. So you definitely want to be like very specific with who you bring in in that way. So that can potentially be a, di- a disadvantage if you're not being um, like smart about the energy that you invite into your organization in that way. Um, something else to keep in mind is that all of your finances are posted for public inspection. So like people can go online, Google your organization and um, obtain copies of your state and federal filings to learn about your salaries, like where the money is going, that sort of thing. So mm. those are all things to keep in mind. Um, it's, it's definitely like more accountability that comes with the organization and just making sure like you're not taking a hundred thousand dollar grant and then putting Ninety thousand pockets. Yeah, yeah. Um, so just just things like that to keep in yeah. mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, I kind of want to ask a follow up question mm-hmm. to that. Um, for people who think that that sounds really scary, and they're mm-hmm. like, mm, I don't know about that. Um, are there any other, I guess, like routes that you would suggest they go like outside like of alternative, like yeah, an alternative, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you can also, you can create an LLC instead. Um, There's still going to be, you know, like, 
things that come up where you're you're going to have to like do still all the filings all of that with that it's kind of nice because you have more personal ownership like I had an LLC I didn't need a board of directors or anything Mm -hmm. for my company specifically Um, but I will say if your intent is to be um, an arts organization and you want to be eligible eligible for grants and um, really just uh, get a, a bigger foothold in terms of fundraising in this specific realm, I do highly recommend that 501c3 mm-hmm. because it makes a huge difference when you can offer that um, write-off to like mm-hmm. potential donors and businesses and be eligible for grants. It opens up so many doors. Um, I think there's a lot more roadblocks that would pop up if you did just um, have the LLC status. Right. Like, And that's that's for me also being very biased in that all the organizations I have operated, I've, I've worked for have all been 501c3 mm-hmm. and for them knowing it makes life a lot easier in terms yeah. of fundraising, <laughs> especially if you're in an industry where you're not getting that much revenue from like ticket sales and stuff like right. theaters and dance companies that you're... It, there was a time where you got a really nice chunk of your budget from ticket sales. That time has passed. You Mm -hmm. can have um, like uh, one dance company, for example, I was talking with their executive director. They sold out seven shows at the Joyce theater in New York. They still lost money on that tour. Mm -hmm. And those are just like, things to keep in mind and perspectives to have you can sell out your event you can you can do all the things it can be a massive success but you can still lose money at the end of the day yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. okay awesome well my next question do you have any advice for grant writing whether it's for individuals or organizations Mm -hmm. so I was very lucky in that I had a lot of opportunities to learn by doing in like low stakes environments Mm -hmm. Um, so specifically starting off in college where I had access to um, previous templates and even coming into um, like dance craft positions I can have access to like the portals of previous grants and see like what was said in the vernacular so I definitely had a bit of um, a leg up in in terms of learning my um around that space but my mentor advised me to really look for like an organization or a grant that I knew we for sure weren't going to get and then just um like writing now so I could understand the time commitment what was required um personally I also see these as like a sales pitch as well you need to be very good at Um, understanding what the criteria is and structuring without, of course, like lying or being deceptive, like how your organization fulfills that criteria. And Mm -hmm. sometimes there's like a word count. You maybe only have 500 words to get your point across. So it's definitely a specific um, skill with writing. You need to have someone who is a strong writer and can make a very solid case for your organization as well. Um, There are resources around Chicago where you can do that. There's like um, UIC, for example, um, you University of Chicago, they definitely have workshops in grant writing where they're just like shorter intensive workshops. You do have to pay for those. Mm -hmm. Um, They'll usually be anywhere from $350 to like $500. Um, I've never taken any of them, so I can't like specifically point to one that I think would be the most helpful, but there are some really good um, resources out there for researching grants and for just like finding more spaces where you can get into those workshops. Um, and I'm, I think we can post like a list of this as well at the bottom of yeah. the podcast, yeah. but a few of them would be arts Alliance, Illinois, um, forefront is a big one. 
three arts organization, um, DCASE, the Department for Cultural Affairs and Special Events in Chicago. Um, that's where you, you see a lot of the individual grants for artists in the community being given. They're usually like anywhere from three to $5,000. So if you're not a nonprofit, but you do want to do your own individual projects and get funding for it, that's one really, really good place to go because they're at the forefront of providing individual funding for people. So DCASE is a good one. Um, see Chicago Dance has some resources, um, the National Arts Advocate, as well as Dance USA. So those are a pretty good amount of just like websites and places to start. Um, but yeah, grant writing itself is a very specific skill. A lot of people that I've met in that um, area have, um, have had training in just like writing in general, whether they have an English degree. I personally had a minor in literary journalism when mm. I was in college. And that gave me um, that style of writing, like journalistic writing is like, get in, make your point and get out. So yeah. <laughs> it was really, really helpful um, kind of stepping into those roles as well. Um, but yeah, grant writing can also be a super lucrative career. If you, if you try it out, if you're consistently getting grants and you're good at it, there is a shortage of labor in that department. And there are places that you can go. Um, there's um, companies like Campbell and Company, for example, that hires grant writers to source out to different organizations and they are paid very, very well. And you mm -hmm. can also, um, if you don't feel comfortable setting an hourly rate, you can um, negotiate like commissions, that sort of thing. But as a side note, that's a very viable career and something my dad actually did for a long time too. So Awesome. Mm -hmm. So kind of flipping a little bit the mm -hmm. subject. So we have grants as one possible source of income mm -hmm. for fundraising. The other is typically donors, right? So my mm -hmm. next question is, do you have any advice for creating like a really effective donor program and like creating and maintaining those relationships. Mm -hmm. So the word relationship is very key in bigger organizations. Um, there's going to be some kind of software usually present like Razor's Edge or Tessitura. And within those platforms, you have all of your constituents li listed and specifically have plans organized for your donors. So within that, we are pretty, um, not pretty, we are very detailed when it comes to um, recording and planning out the touch points that we have with individuals during the year. So every email that's sent out to these people, every appeal that is sent out, every interaction is very carefully recorded and maintained because at the end of the day, it's not just a dollar exchange, it's a relationship that you're forming with someone. Like you don't want to be in a situation where you have an appeal, they donate $500 and then they don't hear from you for a year and then you come back and ask for $500. That's weird. Um, so trying to avoid that is a really um, is really important, and you can do this various ways. Um, the way that I've looked at it, and um, just zooming out, is you can create your general appeals for people during the year. But of course, if you have someone that's giving, you know, like ten, twenty, a hundred thousand dollars, like a, a big relative chunk, um, like in relation to what your budget is, that's when you can start to really introduce even more personal touch points. There are teams of people in biggest in bigger organizations where their job is to go and take people to dinner and take them to lunch and talk to them. Um, and I'm not saying that as a smaller organization, you need to maybe like be at that level quite yet, but making sure that, you know, you're sending them a thank you after they come to a performance <laughs> that, you know, um, you're, you're individually reaching out to them if they give a gift and make 
making sure that there are those like human touch points that exist. So yeah, I kind of think of it as like you have the skeleton, you have your broad appeals, your emails that you're going to send out, and then how can you flesh it out by adding some personal touch points. Mm -hmm. Um, Other ways you can do that is specifically with dance companies and theaters, a really common thing is having like a donor specific reception after a show. Those are great because then you can get all those people together that you want to talk to in one space without like the chaos of being in the actual theater during the performance Mm -hmm. and trying to track down everyone in 15 minutes right um so it feels less rushed and more authentic so that's the biggest thing that i can say when it comes to building a strategy within your donors is making sure that you have personal touch points embedded in with you know an appeals campaign or whatever it is but how that would get broken down is you know you have your appeals for a benefit a gala maybe a fall appeal that's a whole other subject in its own but this is like a broad overview of how you can start to think about your relationship with people that are individually supporting your organization yeah and maybe we could do another talk about that at some point yeah deeper deeper into that if people are interested but um uh just to wrap up are there any additional tools resources or advice that you'd want to recommend Mm -hmm. yeah so um one organization that i've been keeping on my radar and had a few chats with is the arts business council um i'm specifically chatting with them about um board development And this is not just relevant for crash as we enter a transition period and are um, reevaluating our board and the people that we want on it and bringing on more. But in general, is a conversation that I'm having with um, Chicago Shakes, the bigger organization that I'm with, how we can continue to like bring in new people, um, you know, new board members, new new donors, because all of that is something that across the board in the industry people are people are struggling with like people aren't donating the same that they were years ago especially for organizations that um, maybe you know 15 years ago they were consistently getting these really large gifts from people especially with the onset of covid which really transformed everything a lot of people have left the city a lot of people have gone to suburbs um, tickets and just the way that people show up in person to spaces is completely transformed Um, So going to places like Arts Business Council that is doing a lot of research in these areas. Um, University of Chicago as well has a really robust nonprofits program and have uh, resources available on their website. Um, Bridgespan Group, Forefront, Taproot, um, they're all um, sites and organizations that have a lot to offer in terms of being at the forefront of research on how to just kind of make up the gap and the the general decline that we've mm-hmm. seen across the board um, in a lot of organizations. So at the end of the day too, starting with going back to just that primary connection, your mission, making sure that you're fulfilling the community, bringing more people into your community and never losing sight of that as mm-hmm. well. But yeah, it's um, it's a very much evolving terrain. A lot of a lot of organizations are struggling right now and that's that's how it is but you know we're we're working through it so it's a great it's it a out. great time to start your own nonprofit. yes <laughs> i'm not saying that to scare anyone that's just been an, i think having a nonprofit, like especially if you're just starting up the benefits 
far outweigh the risk that comes with it. This mm-hmm. is more speaking from a, um, a point of view of larger organizations that have been around and are yeah. now getting, you know, especially when they've built up like major operating costs. The beautiful thing about starting a nonprofit now is if you don't have a theater you're trying to maintain or a studio right. or something like that, your operating cost is going to be way lower mm-hmm. and you can be a lot more strategic or where you look for that funding and have a little bit more leeway. If like something falls through, cool, we're kind of living in, the land of abundance versus we have to make this specific quota or the organization won't be around. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think too, like on the flip side of that, like it's okay if people are a little scared. Like I think it takes a lot of work and and dedication to make something like that work. So Mm -hmm. like, yeah, you have to really be prepared for it. So Mm -hmm. I think there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, thank you again for joining me Mm -hmm. um, on this amazing podcast episode. Mm -hmm. Um, I honestly love talking about this stuff. So hopefully, Hopefully we'll, we'll be able mm-hmm. to do this again in the future. But yeah, um, thank you again to everyone who's listening. If you have not already, please rate my podcast five stars. If you guys have any feedback or requests for types of episodes that you want to hear, please feel free to comment or message me at Jinxance Media on Instagram. And yeah, other than that, I will talk to you guys next week. Bye.